Good morning, good morning. Oh, good morning, Janita. It's very nice to see you all. <clears throat> Please give me a little bit of grace today. Um, my voice just needs to get into the right pitch, and we should be good from there on out. I've had a little bit of flu this week, <clears throat> and I think my voice is just finding its space and groove today, and then we should all be fine. But uh, for those of you who've been away for a few weeks, so have Shell and I. So it is really nice to see you after we've been uh, in the USA and with the restored family of churches for the last little bit. And I just wanted to give you a little bit of feedback and just say that we had an amazing time with them. Um, most of you guys probably would have met someone or a team that has come out over the last, I guess, four years since we've uh, been running. And it was just amazing to be with all four of the churches that are part of that family of churches and just kind of see what God is doing literally about as far away as you can go from Durban as possible. A few people said, how long did it take you to get here by plane and everything? And it probably is one of the furthest places that you can go from Durban. So it was amazing to see them all. And I think just see what God is doing in these different churches all around Southern California. But I think maybe the highlight for us was um, being at the Restored Family of Churches retreat. They did their first ever camp together. All four churches kind of getting together just for a weekend, they said, of being with Jesus. That was the theme that they had for this time away. And it was just really amazing to see almost this family reunion as these four churches that had come out of one church came together again to worship Jesus, to spend time with him, to hear what he was saying. I think in each session that we had, there were just these amazing moments of people responding to what the Spirit of God was saying to them. I think we'll probably have a little bit of time just to do that at the end of um, our time together this morning. But I hope that you are open to hearing what the Spirit is saying, to what Jesus wants to say to you today, because he is a speaking God. He's present with us here today. I think he is desperate for us to follow him and know him and grow in our relationship with him. So all of the churches send love, and um, I'm sure you'll see some of them over the next year or so as teams come out to visit us <clears throat> and encourage us a little bit. But today, if you've been here over the last while, after 14 weeks in the book of Ephesians, today is our 15th and final week going through this book together. I think it's, it's the most incredible book of the Bible. I think it's encouraged us and taught us a ton as a church and put huge foundations into us all together. I think for 14 weeks, we've looked at our new identity in Jesus and what it looks like for us to live out that new identity as new creations inside of him. And I think we've looked at everything. We've looked at what it means to be in Christ. We've looked at what it means to be in the church. We've looked at the new spirituality we have as followers of Jesus. We've looked at marriage. We've looked at work. We've looked at families. We've looked at spiritual warfare last week. I could tell listening to Brendan's message that some of you maybe found that bit of a challenging thing, a little bit new, a little bit different to you. <clears throat> But it's amazing how Paul shows us how everything in our lives is reoriented around the person of Jesus. And one last time, we're going to look at what Paul said to this church a few thousand years ago. In Ephesians 6 verse 24, the last verse in the whole of these six chapters that we've spent 15 weeks in now, Paul writes and concludes his letters saying, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That's the conclusion. It's the last sentence. It's the last line in the book. And I think in some ways we might find that a bit anticlimactic. Like, really? Jesus, that's it? You just want us to love you and enjoy you. And kind of the idea of that uh, tense, this love incorruptible, is that we would do that ongoingly. From here on out, that we would love Jesus. Now, Paul, who founded this church in Ephesus, spent two and a quarter years with them up front. 
establishing that church and teaching them and helping them to grow and be strong in the gospel of Jesus. And while this was going on, about another six churches were planted all around ancient Asia Minor from that one church in the city of Ephesus. And it was this amazing thing as one church was being served and growing and maturing in their faith and in knowing Jesus, all of these people were sent out to tell other people about Jesus and see this kingdom of God advance and this message that it impacted their lives, impact others. And Paul started this church with 12 male disciples. That's kind of what we get in the book of Acts. Probably with their wives and their kids, it would have been 50 or 60 people that made up this core team in the city of Ephesus. And Paul was daily doing these lectures in what must be the coolest lecture hall of all time, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. What a great name. And they would be from 11 till 4 every day. It's five hours of lectures that Paul would do during the hottest time of the day when everyone else had left work and everyone else had gone home to sleep because it was so hot. They took a break from work, like a little siesta, and then would go back to work. During that time, Paul was teaching and he was building this church in the city of Ephesus. And I want to say that because this is a supernatural thing of God. No one wants to be there in this hot lecture hall, the hottest time of the day when everyone else is taking a nap. But somehow God uses that slot and that group of people to impact the world. Acts 19 verse 10 says, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The small group of people in the city of Ephesus, meeting at the worst time of day in a really hot theater, somehow were being impacted by this message of Jesus. And as they traveled, because Paul stayed put in one place, this message was going all around this province of Asia, impacting and changing people's lives. And as I hear about that, I think I love the church of Ephesus. And I would love that to be said of us. Imagine over time, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Etiquini heard the word of the Lord. And that's something worth praying for and desiring and living to become. And Paul closes the sixth chapter letter to this church with this very simple idea. Love Jesus. Continue to love Jesus. And I was thinking about it. It seems almost funny. Like Paul, for six chapters, has just been throwing out truth bombs, like these amazing pearls of wisdom. And like almost every chapter, there's like these memorizable uh, phrases or quotes or scriptures that he puts out there that are so impactful for our lives. I've been deeply impacted going through this book. And then almost he ends with such a simple thing. It's like this anti-climax, this anti-mic drop moment as he's like, okay, guys, let's end it off. Love Jesus. I almost think these are the ABCs of Christianity. This is like Christianity 101. We get it. The greatest commandment, love Jesus, love your neighbor. We've got that. But Paul is saying this because he knows how easily we forget. He knows how quickly we move on to other things, how distracted we get from him. And how as much as this is the most important thing and the most basic thing, and the thing probably any of us in this room who've been in church for any amount of time know, love Jesus. It's something we need to be reminded of all the time because we start to enjoy and love all of these other things. But about 40 years after Paul finishes the book of Ephesus, after this church has been planted and established, John the Revelator, John the Apostle, John the best friend of Jesus, has this encounter with Jesus, this vision, which is the book of Revelation, 20-something chapters of Jesus speaking to him. And in Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven messages that Jesus gives to John for these churches that were planted all around Asia Minor. And one of those messages is for the church in Ephesus. And it's kind of like a funny thing. 40 years after these churches planted, where are they now? 
Who have they become? What is going on inside of them? It's kind of like, I don't know if you guys have seen any of those memes online, which is like, where are they now, those 90s child stars? Have any of you clicked on that before? Okay, we've got one. Okay, I've done it as well. I know some of you are lying about this. Okay, Exo says he's done it too. Exo's into all sorts of weird... (laughs) I take that back. That sounded really dishonoring. Sorry, dude. I've clicked on those things before, and you know kind of Macaulay Culkin or that girl who played Matilda in that Roald Dahl movie back in the day or whoever it might be. And basically you know that it's going to be one of two extremes. Either these people have crashed and burned and their lives are a complete mess, or they like graduated summa cum laude from Harvard and now are like rocket scientists or astrophysicists or something like that. You know it's going to be one end, one extreme. And this is kind of what's going on in the book of Revelation 2 and 3. John is writing about where are they now. It's kind of like E true Hollywood story behind the church plan. Where did they end up? Who have these churches become? And the church in Ephesus that Paul has written about for six chapters or 15 weeks of preaching is about 40 years old, maybe 45 years old at this time. It's a big church. It's an influential church. It's a church that churches all around the region look to as a leader. This is a church that has worked hard in serving Jesus over the years. And this is a church that loves and knows the Bible really, really well. This has also been a church that has got this leadership dream team. It was planted by Paul the Apostle, like the great church planter of all time. On top of that, John the Apostle, you know, Jesus' best friend, the person who knew Jesus better than anyone else like on earth, he was part of the leadership team of that church. On top of that, Timothy, Paul's protege, his um, disciple, summa cum laude, he is there. He led the church after Paul for a number of years. And on top of that, we've also got Apollos, who is known as the great preacher. He was famous for his preaching. And he's there in that church, preaching and teaching for years. And then we've got Priscilla and Aquila, this incredible husband and wife who planted businesses all around Asia Minor and also planted churches all over. They were this amazing couple who facilitated seeing the kingdom of God advance. They were all part of this crew. And for 40 years, four decades, this church has served God and advanced his kingdom and obeyed him and done what he had called them to do over and over and over and over. So what would Jesus say to a church like this? 40, 45 years to his history. Couldn't be anything but good, hey? If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 2. We're going to read verse 1 to 7 together. Otherwise, it will come up on the screen just behind me. And what we're going to look at today at the end of the series is how to love Jesus for the long haul. How to love Jesus for the long haul. Revelation 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. To me as a pastor, that's the scariest thing I can imagine Jesus saying to me or to our church. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. <clears throat> Forty years after Paul writes the letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus gives a message through John the Apostle to that same church. And he starts in chapter 2, verse 1, talking about himself. So that was kind of funny. Jesus, who's giving the message, starts speaking about himself. And he speaks about himself holding and walking. And I'm not going to go into what the stars represent and what the lampstands represent today. But we see this picture of Jesus holding and walking, which tells us a lot about him. Firstly, this idea of holding. Jesus is holding the churches or the people in his hands. And I want you to think about this because Jesus is a loving king. He's loving and he's a king. I want you to think about the fact that Jesus holds you in his hand through the hardest possible moments of your life. You were there in the palm of his hand. I read this quote by Charles Spurgeon recently. He was a famous preacher. He said, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. And that really impacted me. Because this is what the Bible is saying. Is when you're going through a hard time, you're there in the palm of the hand of Jesus who loves you. But also Jesus who is the king of kings. The king of the universe. The one who has authority over all things. So as much as he cares, he also controls all things. So while it might be hard to understand why this is going on. At the same time, we know that we're in the hand of someone who is very powerful and who loves us very, very much. You're in his hand. Even when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. And we can trust his heart because we know what's happened on the cross. We know what Jesus has endured because of his love for us. So even as we go through hardship, we can know he holds us, and he cares for us, and he is powerful. Romans 8 verse 28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So even in these hard moments, which are hard to understand, and I don't want to just pretend that this is all easy and straightforward and simple, but even in those moments, God is working things together for the good. And Michael Eaton, this um, commentator, he says his translation of that text is even when everything is going wrong, everything is going right. I thought about that. Even in the hardest moments of our lives, we're there in the palm of the hand of Jesus. When nothing makes sense, when everything feels like it's going wrong, King Jesus holds us in his hand with great love. He doesn't just hold us in his hands, though. he also walks among the churches. So I want you to think of that, Jesus walking among the church today. Jesus is not absent. Jesus isn't distant. Jesus isn't out there somewhere. He's here today. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is present here with us now. He's speaking. He's acting. He wants to meet with you today. And not just him walking among this church. He walks among the churches of Durban and the churches of South Africa and the churches of this world. And he knows what is going on. Kind of like a shepherd walking among his sheep. You know? In John 14, it speaks about Jesus or John 12 and 14. Jesus being the one who knows his sheep and his sheep know his voice, you know. Jesus is the good shepherd who tends his flocks and he knows the condition of them. It's like Jesus is going through this church today and he knows the state of your heart. He knows where you're at. He knows how you're doing. He knows your prayers. He's involved. He's engaged. He's not distant and out there. He loves you and he cares. So that same Jesus, the king, the loving king, commends this church in verse 2 and 3. And he says this, <clears throat> I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. As I read that, I thought to myself, are you working for Jesus? 
And that's a really good question to ask. These guys for 40 years have endured patiently. They've toiled, they've worked for him, they've served him in many different ways. I want to ask you today, are you working for Jesus? Are you serving Jesus? Are you living for him? They've literally, for 40 years, four decades, toiled in the city of Ephesus in a hostile city, which is not open to the gospel. They've been abused and rejected for sharing this message of Jesus. They've seen their friends go to start these other churches all around Asia Minor. They've led life groups. They've set up church. They've packed away at the end of Sundays. They've invested into people and prayed for people and cared for people. For 40 years, they've seen what Jesus is doing in the city, and they've played a part of it. And Jesus commends them for that, commends them and honors them for their toil and their sacrifice and their hard work. <clears throat> and he commends and encourages them because they will not stand for evil and they're testing everything that is said. This is a Bible church. They love the Bible. They love the scriptures and the word of God and they know it. They've memorized it. They're reading it. They're studying it. They're quoting it because they want to make sure that what they're doing is Jesus' way and Jesus' truth. So there's this culture going around them which is so different to the church and so different to the way of Jesus, but they are rejecting that. And whenever a new teacher comes into town or a new teaching comes into town, they're almost taking out like a fine-tooth comb. They're taking out their Bible microscope and putting everything that's said under that to kind of check it out and make sure this is what Jesus says. This is Jesus' way and this is Jesus' word. This is the kind of church that you would buy books from. This is the kind of church you would download their podcasts and listen to or go to the conferences they did because their teaching was just so good. They were faithful to the word of God. And I want to encourage us to be faithful to this word too, to love this book as a gift from God, to study it for ourselves, to memorize it, to think it through, to study themes from the Bible so that when new teachings or ideas come into town, we won't be like children tossed to and fro by waves of teaching but we will hold fast to what Jesus' word teaches us and says. And then in verse 6, we read something very interesting. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, firstly, I think maybe the thing that will surprise us about Jesus there is Jesus is saying, well done for hating stuff, church. I think that kind of throws us off, you know. 1 John 4, verse 8 and 16, God is love, God is love. Jesus is love. So we think in that way, but here we see Jesus hating the works of a group of people and saying, well done church for hating those works too, because those are not good. That is not my way. That is so contrary to my way. And in a sense, we can read that and think, okay, that's something new. I've learned that about Jesus. Jesus hates stuff. It's okay for us to hate injustice and false teaching and wrong and unrighteousness. But that word Nicolaitan should also pop out to us. <clears throat> I think sometimes we skim over things like that because we think, well, I've lived in Durban for 32 years. There'd be no Nicolaitan churches that have popped up, at least that I know. There'd be no um, books that have been written the gospel according to the Nicolaitans. And no one has ever come to me and said, Grant, my friend's just been asking what our church thinks about the Nicolaitan teachings. What do you think? So we kind of read this and we go, okay, that's 2,000 years ago. That doesn't matter to us at all. But this is actually a really fascinating thing. The Nicolaitans are the followers of Nicholas, the deacon who was appointed in Acts chapter 6. Verse 5. I want you to think about this for a second. <clears throat> There's a bunch of great deacons or servant leaders in this church who serve the church in a whole bunch of different ways. But I'm going to pick on Eugene today because it was his birthday yesterday. 
So Eugene has been in this church since day one. He's served in amazing ways. He leads a band. He leads one of our life groups. People come into his home every week. He teaches them, disciples them, helps them to know Jesus better. He's served in, I guess, in the band in a whole bunch of different ways, but now he leads this band. He's faithful in this church. But imagine in a few years, Eugene just starts to drift ever so slightly. And after years of being led and shaped and formed in this church, he starts to kind of veer off from what we've taught into something else. That's exactly what happens with Nicholas. He was one of the leaders that everyone in the Jerusalem church said, we back this guy. He's a deacon, filled with the spirit, filled with faith. But here, decades later, we see that this guy has gone off sides and he's been leading the church astray. Some of the church fathers had this to say about the Nicolaitans. Clement of Alexandria identified the followers of Nicholas as a sect who abandoning themselves to pleasure like goats. I just want to pause there because I'm not a farm guy. I know Callum and some of you are, but I don't really know what goats are like. I don't know their kind of character and their vibe, but it seems from Clement of Alexandria that goats have like this uh, way of abandoning themselves over to their pleasure. At least that's what he said of the Nicolaitans. So they did that goat-like and they led a life of self-indulgence. Another church father, Tertullian, said that they lived lives of lust and luxury. And really what these guys taught was immorality and idolatry. They were like, whatever you find that pleases you, do it. They were hedonists. They were saying, Jesus isn't going to be the one who satisfies you, so don't worry about his teaching or his righteousness or his ways or even him. Do whatever you find that satisfies you. I think as we look at the Nicolaitan teaching in that way, it seems a little bit more relevant to us. I've just spent two weeks in Southern California, and I can tell you that the Nicolaitan heresy is very alive in that part of the world. Many people in the church are living that way, whatever pleases me. I think it's true in the Durban church too. Many people in Durban who are part of church, who've known or followed Jesus for a long time, are saying, what is going to give me the most amount of pleasure? What is going to satisfy me the most? And we believe the lie that it's not Jesus. So we look in other places. And maybe you're in that same place today. Maybe for you today, there's secret sexual sin going on in your life. And maybe it's a secret because you know people in this church won't approve, but you're carrying on in it, believing the lie that that will satisfy more than Jesus. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe you're having an affair. Maybe there's a situation in your life where actually you are hooking up with someone in an unhealthy way and no one knows and you keep doing it and it's hurting you and you believe the lie that that's going to satisfy we talk about idolatry quite a lot in this church. But maybe for you, actually, you've heard all this talk about worshiping things other than Jesus. You know, good things becoming gods to us. But actually, you've kind of put on this like blind spot to this idea. And maybe for you, money could be an idol. Or maybe it's not money. Maybe it's your family. Or maybe it's your spouse or your lack of a spouse. Or maybe it's your career. Or maybe it's children. Or maybe it's your home. Whatever it could be. One of those things has become this idol for you that you are seeking pleasure and satisfaction in and you're devoting your life to that holistically. That's what the Nicolaitans were doing. Maybe for you can identify with putting one of those things at the center of your life other than Jesus. But this is one of the things that were coming at the Ephesian church and they were saying, we won't believe the lie. We won't go into this. They rejected it. And I want to encourage you to do the same because Jesus is better. Jesus is better. C.S. Lewis said this, and some of you guys will know this quote in his book, The Weight of Glory. 
If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you believe that Jesus satisfies more than anything else? And are you looking for your pleasure inside of him? Jesus commended them for these things. You work hard for him. That actually you hold to the truth. And that you hate the Nicolaitans' works and teachings. I want you to think for a second. What do you think Jesus would commend this church for today? What do you think he would say, well done, Harbor City, to us for today? The Ephesian church rejected the Nicolaitan heresy, but they had another, even bigger problem going on. Jesus says in John 5, verse 39 to 40, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That was what was going on in Ephesus. I think some of us think, well, I've come to Jesus with my stuff, and we do that. We come to Jesus after all the decisions we've made and after the lives we've lived and after the roads we've walked down. And we say, Jesus, here's my mess. Will you wave your wand over this and make it all right? And then I'll follow you. Then I'll believe in you. And that's actually not what's going on in John 5 verse 39. Jesus is saying, will you see who I am and come to me and say, you are Lord, you are Savior, you are King, you are Creator. You are the one who has eternal life. Would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you give me this gift that you offer? And yes, I've got all of this mess with me too. All of this stuff is going on. Would you come into the mess? But it's not, hey, sort this out and maybe I'll follow you. It's I'll follow you because you're worthy and thank you for dealing with this mess. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, the Pharisees who knew the Old Testament so well knew the scriptures off by heart, knew them inside out, but still didn't see that they were all pointing to Jesus. And this Ephesian church, they knew the Old Testament scriptures so well. They knew the gospel so well. They knew the Bible so well. But at the same time as that, they'd given up on Jesus. They had become a church that loved theology more than God. They loved ideas and books more than they loved people. And Jesus looks at them and says, it can't be that way. It just can't be that way. Jesus commends this church, but he has got a huge correction for them. And in Revelation 2, 4 to 6, he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And it's this thing that by all outward appearances, this church looks healthy. 40 years of serving God. 40 years with the best leaders, 40 years with teaching like the book of Ephesus that we've had. But somehow, despite all of the things this church had going for them, they've still drifted from the truth and the purity and the simplicity of devotion to Jesus and given themselves to something else. And now Jesus speaks to them, and quite strongly, this shows jealous as Jesus' love for the church and for our devotion to him. He says, if you guys don't repent of that, I'm going to shut the church down. After four decades, Jesus is willing to do that. Now, I honestly read that, and I just don't believe Jesus would do that. You know, I don't know if you feel the same. 
A few years ago, I was reading a blog post. It was like an open letter that an elder of a church in America wrote. It was at a time when their church was going through a really tough thing. Their leader was being accused of all sorts of stuff. And about 18 elders resigned from the church and left. And I was reading this open letter, and this elder wrote and said that he believed that their church was like the church in Ephesus. And unless they repented and went back to their first love, just the purity of love for Jesus, he was going to shut the whole thing down. And I was like, there is no way that is going to happen. This was a church of about 14,000 people in about three or four different states in the USA. Books like crazy. I think millions of people listening to their podcast every single week. And a few months later, that church didn't exist anymore. And I was just so struck by that. So Jesus wants us to love him. Jesus cares about our love for him more than he cares about anything that we're doing or anything that we're getting right as a church. Jesus cares about that. And his correction to them reveals this. He says, you have abandoned or forsaken the love you had at first. The message translation puts it slightly more um, casually. It says, but you walked away from your first love. Why? What's going on with you anyway? This love that they had abandoned or they had left behind was Jesus. They'd given him up for other things. And now he is calling them back to himself. One commentator says they had lost the first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life. And I want to remind you of that today. Do you remember when you started out as a Christian and you first heard about the message of Jesus and he became real to you? Maybe you'd heard about him for years, but when it became real, that this Jesus was true. He was God. He was king. He had died on the cross for your sins because he loved you so much. And that message clicked inside of your heart. And you thought, wow, God loves me. I am forgiven. I am his child. Because I remember that. I remember being like a 17, 18-year-old boy and spending time alone in my room just with him because I'd found out that I could know God and that he would speak to me. And it was like the most incredible truth. Do you remember those days? We had um, a team from Restored LA out a few weeks ago. And Paolo, Ryan, and Jill were all here. And they all shared in different contexts in this church. And in about two weeks' time, all of them will have been a Christian for two years. Callum, Tabani, and I met them about two or three weeks after they had first begun to follow Jesus. And it was so cool watching them here and then being with them in California and just seeing how Jesus poured out of them. We had a little dinner with them last Friday night. And they just almost seemed so besotted with him, so excited about him, just so in love with him. And almost all of the stuff is just new. It's like this fresh Jesus euphoria that they're going through at the moment. And I want you to think of how sad it would be if in 40 years' time, they're so faithful in the church. They're at every Sunday gathering. They're leading a life group. They're tithing. They're serving in the church. They're singing the songs. They're doing all the right stuff. Actually, they just don't love him anymore. On Sundays, as the church service kind of shuts down, they hop in their car and drive off with excitement to go and do the things they really love. That's what's happened with the church in Ephesus. I remember being in a church service once and watching this woman worship like this. And she turned and kind of looked this way. In my mind, I remember it. She looked and there was a child making a noise and she like scolded the child like, shh, shh carried on kind of going around and I just thought she's doing the right thing externally 
She's praising Jesus, but her heart is far from him. She's saying, who's in the room today? What's going on? Who's making that noise? What's the story? She's doing the right thing, but her heart is far from him. And that's what's happened with the church in Ephesus. Shell and I got married about six and a half years ago. And as we were preparing to get married, I mean, everything is focused around the wedding and the future and home and setting up all of these things like a number of you in this room have experienced or are experiencing at the moment. And I remember at this time as we were preparing to get married, one of our close friends was preparing to get divorced. And it was like this crazy situation where almost weekly he would come around to our place. And obviously there's two sides to every story and all of that. But um, he'd been rejected, and um, she wanted out. He wanted to make it work. She wanted out. They were living in the same place in separate rooms, preparing to get divorced. And as we would sit together, the biggest thing in my life was that I was marrying Shell. The biggest thing in his life was that he was going through this divorce. And we talked about these two things that just seemed so contrary, you know. And this is exactly what's going on with the church of Ephesus. They have rejected Jesus. They have chosen another love. They have forsaken or abandoned him for something else. He's still part of their lives. He's still there on the perimeter, but he's not the center. He's not that love. That first love has drifted away, and they're in love with something else now. And my prayer for us, Harbor City, is that that would never happen to us. That in 30 years' time, we would still be in love with him. When all of us are in the ground and there's a new bunch of people meeting in this hall or wherever Harbor City meets at that time, if the church still is around, that we would be madly in love with Jesus, following him, focused on him, enjoying him, incorruptibly in love with him. But what is Jesus' plan for the church that has lost its first love? Or for you today, if you're sitting there saying, this is me, I've lost my love for him. Jesus says three things. Firstly, remember from where you have fallen. Michelle and I were talking about this. She said, it's often like when uh, couples had troubles, they want to think back to the early days, to when they started, what made them fall in love with each other? What excited them about one another? And that's what Jesus is saying here. Think back. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember those early days when you were falling in love with me and what it was that impacted you so much. Secondly, he says, repent. Repent is a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change of life. Our mindset changes, which leads to a change of our desires and our actions. And Jesus is saying, repent and return to me. Repent from the other things that you've been loving and living for and return to me and prioritizing me. And I want to ask you, do you need to do that here today? Maybe you're sitting here and no one from the outside would ever know that anything was wrong in your heart or that you had drifted from Jesus, that you'd abandoned him, that you were choosing something else. But do you need to remember today, repent today, return to him today? And there's an opportunity for us to do that because we want to be a church that loves him for the long run. We want to be loving him for decades and decades to come. And nothing is going to guarantee that not great leadership not great teaching, not great service or hard work, nothing except for faithful love for Jesus. So can I ask you guys to stand for a minute? Can I ask the band to come forward? We're going to go out with a song, but I'd love just to ask you to close your eyes if you don't mind. There's a verse at the end of this passage 
which has really struck me over the last while, and I hope will strike you today. Revelation 2 verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'm almost hoping today, just before we respond with song, if the Spirit has highlighted anything to you today, that you would respond to God in that way. Maybe you know a lot about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've drifted far from him. Maybe you're in that Nicolaitan false teaching. Whatever it is that the Spirit is highlighting to you today, I'd love you to respond. But can we just take a little bit of time to listen to what it is God is wanting to say?